Trinity Central. We exist to make God central to our lives and our world. You are listening to a recording of one of our Sunday messages. For more information, please go to trinitycentral.org. Amen. Thank you so much, Reese. Uh, I really appreciate Reese. We became friends in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, and a time before COVID, pre-pandemic, we met. And from time to time, we'd meet and have great food, yes. great beer, which is very important because <laughs> Benjamin Franklin said, beer is proof that God loves us and, and wants us to be happy. So uh, there's your theological justification from a man with bad theology called Ben Franklin to drink beer. But more important than the food and the froth and the steins is the life-giving conversation. So really appreciate Reese, his heart for Jesus, his love of the gospel, and his encouraging conversations. And yet it was like three years ago, it was supposed to be here. So I probably uh, long overdue that I'm here. Uh, great to be with you. Thoroughly enjoyed the worship that fixes our eyes, our hearts, our affection, our imagination, our focus on Jesus. That's a very good thing. And uh, I've got Reese's permission to give you a little infomercial, so here I go. I lead a missions agency that's 30 years old called Message Trust. And in our Canadian iteration, I came on board in August 2019, and then the pandemic hit. And we were involved in three or four things one of which I want to highlight. We're involved in recruiting, equipping, mobilizing, and supporting teams of downwardly mobile urban missionaries that we call Eden teams who relocate or rise up from within broken postal codes to share their lives and share the hope of the gospel and to engage in community transformation through gospel transformation. And we call them Eden teams. Why? There's a scripture in Ezekiel that says the city that has been laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. So that's our hope. And we've got teams dotted around BC and Alberta. We're working on our first community grocer, which is a Jesus-centered bridge between a food bank and a supermarket where you can have food with dignity and join a community as a tangible expression of God's love. And we're involved in our first one, kind of under wraps, not yet launched, in Kelowna. And we're also involved in something called Advance, so I don't know if you've noticed in Canada, there is a, an endangered and threatened species. There's a strange person, an odd duck, who's a gift from God to the church and to a broken culture called the evangelist. And they're few and far between. And so we want to see God raise up a new generation of evangelists, but we're all called to engage in evangelism. God's crazy dream is this, that the whole church takes the whole gospel to the whole world. Now, part of that movement, it's mission critical that we release, encourage, mentor, mobilize the evangelists because they've got a unique capacity to activate gospel advancement and equip and mobilize the people of God for mission. And we're hosting an advanced summit in Calgary in February 15, 16, 17, just after you've got all gooey and soppy-eyed and romantic on Valentine's Day, we invite you to get swept up in the romance of redemption in Calgary. You're all invited February 15, 16, 17 for advance called and commissioned. 
So we want to encourage those who are called to do the work of an evangelist and support those who want to get in on the action, even if that's not their primary gift. So you can check out our website. I am Dr. Bill Hogg, Mr. Low Tech. And so there is no slide behind me, but our URL is advancesummit.org. There endeth the infomercial. It's really great to be with you. And you're in the start of a series, The God Who... Dot, dot, dot. So last week, James gave you the God who dot, dot, dot cares. And that's vitally important to be reminded if you're a believer or encouraged if you're an explorer that God actually cares about you. There's an invitation in scripture that says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. God is not aloof, distant, or dispassionate. He's actually passionately committed to your well-being and your flourishing. And he is so from a heart that's full of tenderness and love. When I was a small Scottish boy living in the United States of America, I had a significant problem. What was that? I was a small Scottish boy living in the United States of America. That was the problem. God bless America and no place else. And so I was adapting to a new culture. That was a challenge. But my bigger challenge was I was scared of the dark as a small boy. So, you know, I could go with movie theaters because there's always a flickering image on the screen. And even though I was brought up in a legalistic church, I, I did sneak out and did go to the movies that my aunt called the Sin Emma, S-I-N Emma. But I was scared of the dark because at night I would go into bed. And you know, there's a challenge, there's a distance between the light switch inside your bedroom and the bed. It's like the Grand Canyon. And, and I would flick the switch because nobody was kind enough to buy me a, a lamp next to my bed. I would flip the switch and immediately the bedroom would be plunged into demonic darkness. And I would make my way towards the bed, always worrying that orcs, uruk eyes, hobgoblins, or critters from Hades would slither from under my bed and get me. But I did find an antidote. I went to the Bible bookstore and I got a glow-in-the-dark Jesus who looked remarkably like Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn. These are not the droids you're looking for. And so he had that Qui-Gon Jinn pose, the long hair, the beard, so you knew it was Jesus. And at the bottom it says, he cares for you. Now the beautiful thing about that glow-in-the-dark Jesus, you would just lift him up to the lights and then he would pulsate and become fluorescent. So you could turn the light out and you're okay because you're glowing the dark Jesus. And I could scan under my bed in case any demons had appeared after I turned the light out. And I would put them next to my bed because although there was no lamp, there was a table. And I would look with reassuring gaze at glow-in-the-dark Jesus. Be not afraid. He cares for you. Now, did Jesus care? And does Jesus care that a middle-aged woman, 
A 10-year-old boy is scared of the dark? Yes, he does. Does Jesus care that you're worried about inflation, the well-being of your kids in a strange and crazy culture? Yes, he does. Is Jesus concerned about your foibles, your brokenness, and your phobias? Yes. Why? Because he is the God who cares. But he's much more than that, as we discover today. We want to explore this big idea, the God who saves. So the problem is we, we can become reductionists and, and limit Jesus, limit God. But he's a God who defies our imagination, who's knowable but unfathomable. Because in the book of Isaiah, he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts for my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So you can't really capture the greatness and majesty of God. And the danger is, even as those of us who may, even although it's a social liability, identify ourselves as evangelicals, there's a reductionism there when we talk about taking Jesus as our personal savior, as if suddenly he becomes our accessory rather than the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of glory. And we want to remind ourselves and invite you, if you're not yet a believer, into this amazing life-changing truth that the true and living God is the God who saves. Now, we find this theme throughout the Old and New Testament. One writer claims to know God at all is to know him as a saving God so that the words God and Savior are virtually identical terms in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Hosea 13, verse 4, God speaks and he says, I have been the Lord your God Ever since you came out of Egypt, you shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. And here the prophet points to the defining moment in Israel's collective history as a nation, the Exodus, when God saved them, rescued them from their plight as a slave nation under the increasingly oppressive tyranny of Pharaoh. God sets them free from their slavery and they're led into freedom by God's freedom fighter, Moses, into a new place, in a new space, with a new identity as a new people liberated from slavery. And Moses is a central figure in that drama, but the main actor in the drama of redemption and Exodus is God himself. Because he says to Moses, as the Egyptian armies are descending on those ragtag nomads, maybe there's like two million of them, plus sheep, goats, dogs. They wouldn't bring cats because cats are wicked emissaries of Satan. So they left all the cats to perish in Egypt. And there's this army descending on them in turbocharged chariots. And they're moving slowly, like you see how slow it was to move the kids. Out during the break, just imagine you've got geriatric Israelites, you've got grumpy middle-aged Israelites, you've got kids, and you've got the Red Sea that's opened up, and God wants to wash away your past and propel you into a new future, and Pharaoh's armies are coming. 
And God says to Moses, stand still and you will see the salvation of your God. But this idea that the God who saves, like J.R. Packer said, the gospel in summary is God saves sinners. Well, that's three words which say a ton of things. He hasn't captured the essence of the gospel. Those are hooks and words that help us probe into the meaning and truth and power and beauty of the gospel. But Packer says, well, if you want to summarize, but you haven't captured the fullness of the gospel of Jesus, it's this, God saves sinners. But that's a thoroughly unpalatable idea in Canada today because the God who saves collides with self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, moralism. And Canada is largely populated with secular moralists. And, and maybe you're streaming as a Karkarian secular moralist or you've slipped into the theater thinking, you know, I'm a good person. I've got it together. I'm okay. And the problem is we've succumbed to an ideology that Christian Smith labeled moral therapeutic deism. So back in 2005, Christian Smith and his research team decided it would be a good exercise to probe into the beliefs of American adolescents. And of course, while Canadians pride themselves in being a distinct nation from the United States, there is this atmosphere of common culture that we swim around in in North America. And part of the atmosphere we inhale, the environment we walk in, is an ideology of moral therapeutic deism. A God who exists and created and ordered the world and watches over it from a distance. You know, kind of like the absent landlord who's kind of maybe keeping an eye on the apartment he constructed from a distance. The idea that God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other because that's what's taught in the Bible. Be nice, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, never. And the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good. So when I was a pastor in a former life, which is always a jarring walk as an evangelist, I had a woman phone me up, inform me she was leaving her husband. And we had a conversation. He'd already primed me that she wanted to leave him and take their child away. And I said, why in the world would you want to do that? And she said, because I know that God loves me and wants me to be happy. I said, wow, did you get that from the Dr. Seuss Bible? Because God's really not too bothered about your happiness. He's more interested, thank you, in your holiness. And then the idea that good people get to heaven when they die. Well, there's all kinds of problems with moral therapeutic deism. And the big problem, it collides with the God of the Bible who's revealed himself as a God of unimpeachable holiness, a God of majesty, a God of relentless, furious love, a God who's deeply concerned about sin, wickedness, unrighteousness, injustice and has stepped in to do something about it and we're not good people. I'll share Jesus with my 
massage therapist who's a wonderful person. I've not seen her for a long time. But in the course of spiritual conversations, which is weird, like you're under a sheet and she's pummeling you or dealing with problems in your back, and you're in there for an hour with weird new age music and whale singing and stuff like that. And we had a profound moment where I shared the gospel with her. And her gentle, not her hostile, her gentle pushback, someone with very little biblical background said, well, I know I'm a good person. Morag and I were chatting to our neighbor who's no longer our neighbor, not because of what I said to her. We were talking one night and I was, we were, ended up talking about big stuff, cosmic stuff. And I said to our neighbor, we're all messed up. We're all broken. And you're messed up. And I looked at her straight in the eye. She didn't like that. She said, Bill, that is so rude. I said, but it's so true. You are a royal mess up. I'm a mess up. I said, that's why we need Jesus. It's not a case of, if you're messed up, is simply how messed up you might be. That's the issue. I was preaching at a church in Kelowna, and a woman came up to me at the end of the service and said, I didn't like that song. I thought, hi, I'm not the worship pastor. Shut your pie hole and leave me alone. No, I didn't say that because I can sometimes suppress my inside voice. I said, my dear troubled woman, what song don't you like? And she said, Amazing Grace. I don't like Amazing Grace. Gollum, Gollum. Don't like Amazing Grace. I said to her, I love God's Amazing Grace. And I love that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Sometimes people say to me, how are you doing? And I'll say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that's brought me here thus far, and grace will bring me safely home. Uh, and she said, I don't like that. I'm not a wretch. I said, oh, yes, you are. You're a ragged, nasty, ruined wretch of a woman. A child of Gehenna stumbling under the wrath and judgment of God. That's just me using my shepherding gift there. <laughs> but if you haven't awakened to the fact that you are a wretch, you are broken, you are in need of rescue, it short circuits the possibility you will encounter the God who saves. Michael Green said, before we experience the gospel as good news, we need to hear the bad news. And the bad news is, we're broken, we're wretched, we're ruined, we're bankrupt. But the good news is this, that Jesus came to rescue us so that we could be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. I once actually heard a preacher say, Jesus didn't come to rescue us, he came to recruit us. And people are impressed by that because it's pithy, it's a pithy axiom, like you'll remember it forever now. 
You'll remember it this afternoon when you're watching the NFL playoffs, the nearly football league this afternoon. You're, you're watching that and you go, oh yeah, Jesus didn't come to rescue us. He came to recruit us. Ah, thanks for playing. He didn't simply come to enlist us to his kingdom cause before we can be propelled into God's mission in the world and be agents of rescue and redemption and hope and healing. We need to experience Jesus as our rescuer. So that preacher flies in the face of the New Testament witness where Mary and Joseph had no choice in the naming of the son entrusted to him. Mary didn't say to Joseph, remember my uncle Howard? He was such a significant mentor when we went through that troubled time at home. I'd love it if we could call the son of God Howard. How would that work? Answer, it won't. You will call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name actually means God to the rescue. So every time... Mary opened the kitchen door and shouted at teenage Jesus to come in and eat his teenage dinner. And she shouts, Jesus! She shouts, God to the rescue! She announces the heart of the gospel. When Simeon swept the toddler Jesus up into his arms, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, he understood that that little boy squirming in his arms was the embodiment of salvation, the source of life, redemption, forgiveness, and transformation. And Jesus operated with this self-awareness that he is the embodiment and giver of salvation. Only once in the Gospels does Jesus mention salvation. In Luke 19, verse 10, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came on a rescue mission and the early church dialed in on this and they knew that Jesus alone is the source of salvation. He is the God who saves. The eternal God become fully human, stepping into a broken runaway planet populated by a rebel race and he comes to rescue and they say there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. The God who declares in Isaiah 43:11, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior, becomes fully human in the person of Jesus to save, to rescue, to reconcile us to God. So what do we do with this? We play a little bit of Bible hopscotch. And if you've got a Bible, would you turn to the book of Jonah? And uh, that's page 922 in my Bible. And if you've also carrying a stolen Gideon Bible, I'll meet you at page 922. If you have an app, I will forgive you. But God didn't barf an app. He breathed a book. And so I've got the book open. Jonah. And we'll do a little... Bible hot scotch in Jonah and in Matthew to dial into this startling, shocking idea that God is the God who saves and you are a man or a woman who needs to be saved, who needs to be rescued, who needs to be reclaimed by God. So just the first three verses of Jonah for starters, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it 
because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord, which is a foolish proposition. You can't flee from God. He's the inescapable, relentless God who's present everywhere. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where shall I flee from your presence? But obviously Jonah wasn't dialed into that. He just refused God's assignment and rebelled against God. God commissioned him, sent him. But you find Jonah as the unapostle the unsent one. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah Googles Nineveh and then puts into the search bar, furthest place on the planet away from Nineveh. Thank you very much. And he heads off to flee from God. He's a defiant fugitive who's rebelled against God. And the issue of our sin isn't the crappy things we do to ourselves and to each other. Martin Luther said the proper devilishness of sin is this. It changes the first words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, to I am my Lord and my God. So the book of Jonah, which we're only going to dance around today, is a book that celebrates and declares the sovereignty of God. God's in charge. God oversees and orchestrates every circumstance. But actually, in Jonah's operating system, he's God. He's the center. He's the defiant prophet. He's the only person who remotely looks like a cross-cultural missionary in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, the big missionary is God, the sending God. And he gets in a ship and a storm brews up. Because God sends a storm. Because there's always consequences for our sin defines autonomy and rebellion sooner or later. And Jonah's heart's so calcified that he's asleep during the storm while the pagan sailors are distraught. The storm. And they ask him, how can you sleep? In verse 6, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. So they didn't really have an elaborate, systematic theology, but they joined the dots. Like, here's a guy who makes this lame profession that his life contradicts. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and I worship the God of the heavens and the earth. Do you really? Oh, why aren't you submitted and surrendered to his will, his plan, his purpose? But they kind of join the dots that God's coming after Jonah. Because to quote that theologian Johnny Cash, God's going to cut you down. And that's what's happening. God's coming after Jonah. And eventually they get into a solution where they decide, because they knew he was running from the Lord, because he was dumb enough to tell them, that they chuck him overboard. Now, two things happened. The storm subsided. That's good news. Bad news. <laughs> and Jonas swallowed by a great fish, not a whale. Sunday school, 
misinformed you, come listen to my tale of Jonah and the whale way down in the middle of the ocean. How did he get there? Whatever did he wear way down in the middle of the ocean? It wasn't a whale. I think it was a kraken based on extensive research from pirates of the Caribbean. And Jonah, the disobedient prophet, is kind of like a scapegoat who's tossed overboard and peace is established. And he descends into Davy Jones' locker and he's there in the dark, sloshing around in the gastric juices of the kraken. And he prays. That's always a good idea. In trouble. Sometimes our prayers aren't very elaborate. God help me. So the Lord provided a huge fish, 117, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And that was the least of his problems. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you and my prayer rose to you. Then he gets preachy and he says in Jonah 2 verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. There's his testimony. There's the declaration. There's the invitation. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah was in distress. He's inside the large intestine of a sea monster. And he's moving around in the dark. Struggling for oxygen. And eventually, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There he is, bleached by the gastric juices of the Kraken, standing on the shores of that great city, and the Lord comes to him a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you, because the God who saves is the God of second chance. And Jonah declares the saving, rescuing, delivering, liberating work of God, he says, you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's a strange story, a historical story that Jesus affirmed and validated as an actual episode, not some allegory or parable. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Uh, verses 38 to 42, about the Jonah episode. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. There they are, religious skeptics. They want some supernatural explosion of God's power and glory. And Jesus points them 
not to power and glory, but to weakness. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no one will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus says, hey, Pharisees, uptight religionists, skeptics and cynics, teachers of the law who are guilty of adventures in missing the point, pay heed to the sign of Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. So what's he saying? The story of Jonah is a signpost that points to Jesus. It says, learn from the Jonah story because it'll propel you into one who is greater than Jonah. He goes on to say, one who is greater than the temple, one who is greater than the queen of Sheba, the wealthiest monarch on the earth. Because Jesus is God's ultimate self-disclosure and ultimate authoritative revelation. They wanted a demonstration of power and there was plenty of demonstrations of God's power. Jesus healing the sick, Jesus driving out demons. But he says, think on Jonah. Well, why would he say that? Jonah was propelled into a raging sea to save pagan sailors from God's judgment. Jesus was propelled into death to bear all the punishment our sins deserve to save us and establish us in a life of peace. Jesus is cast into death and descends into hell to carry our sins away. Jonah was sacrificed to save the sailors and Jesus was sacrificed for us to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin, to save us from unrighteousness, to save us from self-righteousness, to save us from judgment and wrath. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification so that we could be put in a right relationship with God. Jonah was rescued from the prospect of death, Jesus from death itself, and Jesus himself defeated death. So there's striking differences, obviously, between Jonah, a prophet, a disobedient prophet, and Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, who is the final self-disclosure and ultimately authoritative revelation of God. But Jesus says, think back to that episode in David Jones' locker, where the pagan sailors get it wrong. They think Jonah's an innocent man. He's a, he's a guilty man. But Jonah, being tossed overboard, saves them from the storm and saves them from judgment. And Jesus, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection and exaltation, offers us a new beginning, a new life the power of union and communion with God, reconciled to God, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, 
Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. God saves us through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. We experience his forgiveness when we turn from our sins and trust in him. Put your life in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Put your life in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. He's the rock of ages. He's the sage of sages. Put your life in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Have you experienced his mercy, his grace, his salvation, his power, his resurrection power? You can today. But what's going on with Jonah? If you know the story, he experienced his new beginning. He tastes God's salvation. He experienced God's grace and mercy and salvation. And then finally, he drags his prophetic butt into Nineveh and preaches. And the whole population turns to God in repentance in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, that would be amazing in a prayer letter for Message Canada. Dear friends, I went to that God-forsaken city of Winnipeg and they all turned to him in sackcloth and ashes. But he's, he's unhappy. He's grumpy. He's as mad as a hornet. He's grumpier than those two old geezers from the Muppet show. He's absolutely furious that God extended grace and mercy to the enemies of Israel. The dreaded, violent, despicable, tortuous Assyrians. He's hopping mad. And that's why he was reluctant and resistant and rebellious towards God and God's assignment for him. Because he says in Jonah 4 verse 1, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What? Spiritual awakening. People experiencing mercy instead of judgment. God expressing his compassion and tenderness rather than obliterating the Ninevites and the Assyrian kingdom. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger <coughs> and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Ha! Now, Lord, take away my life. What kind of crazy character is he? What kind of mentally and spiritually unhinged person is he? Harrison says, Jonah prayed for his own death rather than witness the spectacle of Gentiles being admitted to divine favor. Ray Backey wrote, Jonah didn't love the Ninevites. He couldn't, humanly speaking because they had destroyed his people. He didn't understand that his God was bigger than his culture. He couldn't quite understand grace, that God was willing to forgive the most violent people in the Middle East, the Assyrians, who had for hundreds of years destroyed the Jews. But God is a God of mission, not retaliation. Reggie McNeil says, Jonah plays out the story of the Old Testament Israel. He refuses his role in the mission of God. He is swallowed up in captivity. When released, he reluctantly obeys. Then he pouts when God blesses other people. Jonah's got myopia, missional myopia. He doesn't understand that God is the God of the nations whose love and mercy extends to the whole world. 
Jonah's an amnesiac who forgets the deliverance and salvation and mercy that was extended to him. And his memory span is very short between being barfed on the beach, announcing the message, taking umbrage at God's kindness extended to a pagan culture. And this is where Jesus in his magnificence, his power, and his beauty is one greater than Jonah. Because Jonah has his arms folded. He's scowling at God, which is an appropriate way to pray to God according to the psalmist. But his heart is shriveled and tiny. He's furious. He has no compassion and tenderness. God tells him about the great city and how it's populated with lost people who don't know their left hand from the right hand. He doesn't care. So look what you've done, God. I'd rather die than see this moment of mercy and salvation and forgiveness. And how is Jesus one greater than Jonah? Matthew 9. Jesus looks out at the masses. He looks out at the crowd. He looks out at Vancouver. He looks out at Burnaby. He looks out at Cloverdale the redneck republic of Cloverdale where I live. And he says he's moved with compassion because he saw the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God extends to you the offer of salvation, the offer of your past being erased, the offer of judgment being canceled, the offer of a new beginning, the offer to be indwelt by his spirit, the offer to be adopted as his dearly loved child, marked by his presence, his power, his love. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And those of us who've experienced the saving power of Jesus are called to be agents of hope and healing and salvation. And we need trained and mentored and mobilized and equipped for that. But really, the journey of evangelism and declaring salvation starts in the heart. Where you say, Lord, it breaks your heart that people are lost. Break my heart also. Jonah's kind of like the older brother in Luke 15. You know the story of the two sons and the wild, crazy daughter and old fool of a father, the reckless, generous father. Junior says, Dad, you're not dying quick enough. I wish you would pop your clogs and disappear. Because when you die, 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 please die, 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 then I'll get a third of all that's yours. And the dad says, okay, son, let me just go and talk to my financial planner and give you one third of my entire net worth. And the boy buys a sports car and drives off to Las Vegas and acts like a pig and ends up in the pigsty. But he comes to his senses and the father receives him home, which is a scandalous idea after he's dragged the family's name through the muck. And the father embraces him, falls on him, kisses him with all that pig slop, all the smell of the casinos in Vegas still on him. And he throws a party, a decadent, extravagant party. Why? My son was dead but now he's alive. And he's not under probation. He's not living in the basement with no food, the occasional cheese crackers. He's given sandals, a ring, and a robe. 
and they slaughter a fatted calf. Meanwhile, big brother, who never put a foot wrong as an uptight moralistic Pharisee, is out in the field. And he hears the music, and he's annoyed because he knows from his Mennonite upbringing, Christians should never dance, even when Junior comes home. And he wonders what's going on. And maybe we'll find out when someone answers their cell phone what's going on there. And he dispatches a houseboy to go and find out. And he says, your brother is home. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He was found. And he refuses to participate in the celebration. The danger for you and me, if we've been walking with Jesus a long time, our inner Pharisee can reanimate and we can lose sight of the compassion and mercy that God has for others. Why don't we pray? I'll stop talking. We'll talk to God, and I'll invite you to respond. God bless you. So for those of us who love and know and follow and worship Jesus, are you on board with his mission? Do you need God to, to do a renovation in your heart and say, God, give me a revelation of your love and tenderness for those who don't know you? But it's possible you're streaming which is a good place to be. It's a kind of safe distance to explore Christian faith and what God might have for you. Or if you're here in the theater, do you know him? Have you experienced the God who saves? The apostle Paul would say, as he did to a, a distraught Philippian jailer who asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The promise of Scripture is this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, rescued, delivered. You don't need to figure it all out. You can figure this much out. Jesus, you're the great rescuer. You're the great savior. You're alive and well. Your death paid the price for my sin. I don't understand it all, but here, come and get me. I don't want to live my life my way. I want your life. Come and get me. And so I'd like to pray. And then this morning, if you want Jesus to deliver you, rescue you, save you, I'm going to invite you to stand. We could have you come down here, but it's kind of narrow. And you might get spat on while I'm talking. And that would be a sad moment. But we'll pray. And then I'll give you a few moments to respond. Jesus, we thank you that you are greater, greater than greater than, greater than, because you are supreme. You are the eternal, uncreated Son of God who became fully human to rescue us, to salvage us, to claim us so that we could experience forgiveness, a new life, be reconciled to the Father and adopted as His dearly loved children. And we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you the story didn't end with your death where you paid the price for our sin, but you broke free from the tomb and you live forever by the power of your indestructible life. And we thank you that you speak and you say, come, come follow me. Come and be healed. Come and be forgiven. Come and be restored. Come and be saved, made whole, made complete, healed, rescued. We thank you that you are our rescuer, our healer, our forgiver. And we need you. We need you, Jesus. More than we concede, more than we confess, more than we admit. 
And we thank you that you're here tangibly present through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that he wants to release the love of the Father into our empty hearts and erase away sin and guilt and shame. So this morning, friend, you say if you're able to stand, could you stand as a declaration this morning in this place and say, Jesus, save me, reclaim me, salvage me, forgive me. I invite you to stand to your feet and then I'd like to pray for you. You've heard his voice, his life-giving voice, his disruptive voice. You say, yes, I'm standing. Say, Jesus, come and get me. I'm yours. I want your freedom and forgiveness. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now is the day of salvation. And if you join us on the stream, you can just simply turn your heart to him and vocalize that. I'll just take a few moments and I'd like to pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who saves. You meet us where we are as we stand in your presence. We thank you that you're the God of a new beginning, the God who will cancel our past and give us a new future. We thank you that our past is under the blood and that Jesus' death covered all our sins, past, present, and future. And we thank you that we can commend ourselves and commit ourselves to you in the here and now and follow you, not only as rescuer, but as Lord. So have your way. Amen. And Father, we pray for those of us who are believers who've maybe got war worn out and weary because of COVID, walking in elevated levels of grumpiness and irritability, and, and in the midst of it all, lost sight of your beauty, your power, your desire to save and rescue, and your compassion and tenderness, not only for us, which we crave and need every moment, but for those around us. We pray that you would baptize us in love, free us from self-righteousness and judginess, and give us your heart, a heart that's inclined to save, a heart that's inclined to forgive, a heart that runs with mercy, compassion, and tenderness, and propel us afresh with fresh confidence in the power of your gospel. Amen.